All right, here we go. We got the new song. We'll see if this one hits you, Jeremy. I feel singled out. <laughs> that wasn't going to be on the podcast, though. We'll see. <laughs> I'm in charge of what's That's in true. and not in. That's true. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about common, inexpensive, and underappreciated <laughs> records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, theoretical Lucasfilm developer, Peter Cook. In theory, I could develop a better film than Lucas. A lot of people have thought that. <laughs> and of course, uh, real estate appraisal appreciator, Jeremy Ruggles. I am going to close the deal. Seal the deal. I'm going to get you more money for your buck. Good. That's a Buck Rogers. <laughs> admirable pursuit, Jeremy. So we got a record we're going to talk about today. Is that what I understand we're trying to do? Yeah, was it was I the one that was supposed to bring the record? Yeah, you we're going to do another folky-ass record like In, you normally do. Indeed I was. And then you realized that you had been unintentionally typecasting yourself and at the last minute decided to bring something funky in, which is supposed to be more my territory. Indeed, I wanted to kind of step on your feet a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I want to first of all point out that it's inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records. I'm going to change it every episode now. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> And yeah, we, we, I did bring something funky. I brought Donna Summer's 1979 blockbuster Bad Girls. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit funk, but it's also a little bit rock and roll. It is. It's a little ballady and a little bit electronic. Mm -hmm. It's all over the place, and we can talk about that more, but I think we want to, first of all, just get into the music a little bit. 100%. What's the opening track? that we're going to listen to, not well, necessarily the opening track on the album. So a lot of people know the three big hits off this, Hot Stuff, the title track, and Dim All the Lights. But I want to start with a deep cut and kind of stay on that groove. So we're going to listen to Love Will Always Find You.
Peter, I'm probably one of those people who mostly have just heard her hits. I don't think I actually own a Donna Summer record. I, I'm not impressed. That didn't do it for me. You weren't feeling that track? No, that deep cut was... It like lacked the things I like about her hits, which is like a dancey, full-on embrace of disco. Well, so this is part, this was on side one of Bad Girls, and there's it's a double LP. There's four sides to it, and it was produced by Giorgio Moroder and Pete Bellotti, who had basically been involved in everything that she had worked on up to this point. Both and, the producers were involved in everything. In more in one way or another, they had pretty much been involved in her in her discography up to this point. Once okay. she had, they, she basically formed a musical trio partnership with them, and we'll talk more about that when we go into the background. Okay, yeah, but, I didn't know it was a trio. I mean, I knew about the close association with Giorgio Moroder, obviously, but I'm unfamiliar with the third character. He's the better known name of the right. two for sure. He, both Giorgio Moroder and Pete Bellotti played a variety of instruments on this record and wrote a number of the songs, including the one we just heard. Donna Summer sometimes writes her songs. Maybe you're not into Giorgio Moroder and Pete Bellotti. I like Giorgio Moroder's... Wow, I said that. Great. Uh, (laughs) I like the stuff he's usually associated with, but it's usually more dancey, I feel like, unless... So this one I played because it's a little more understated. Yeah. Uh, Maybe it wasn't the best one to go out the gate with, trying to get the party started on the podcast. Yeah, I'm just ready for a party, though. (laughs) It's Donna Summer. So this was her seventh album, and they... uh, they were kind of just trying to go in different directions with it, with her sound kind of almost, I'd say trying to accommodate for the different paths that music was diverging on at the time. Yeah. That's what I was reading. There was it, the general vibe was that disco was just about to die. Cause everyone could tell that the, the new forms of music emerging punk and new wave, et cetera, were not embracing the disco vibe and they knew the end was near. So they were trying to, bridge the gap with the the new kids out there yeah and i think it was just a few months after this album was released that there was that whole death of disco demonstration in chicago right. i believe it like a white Sox game yeah <laughs> yeah bunch of racists 100 percent. so Bellotti, going back to uh, Bellotti, because maroder is the much better known name he's mainly known for his work with donna summer he has also worked with janet jackson uh, tina turner and elton john uh, Maroder has done a billion things, and literally, I would say that you know how Bill Laswell did three thousand. Yeah, I think that Maroder's uh, biographer has counted a billion. Wow! Officially, <laughs> it's probably it's it's probably up there though. I, I don't know what the exact number is, but the uh, Midnight Express music, The Chase, is one of the things he's very well known for. Which I was unaware of this because I'm not like a disco head. I don't even know if that's the right way to refer to a disco stew. Sure. <laughs> I don't know not? the right way to <laughs> refer to someone who's into the disco. But he apparently that was the beginning of a subgenre along with the Donna Summer hit, I Feel Love, known as High NRG with the letters. Have you heard I've, of this I've seen sub-genre? that on Discogs, but I don't feel like I've ever heard someone use that in real life so yeah. i kind of wondered like how active is that subgenre description yeah. and like was it more active at a certain time period than it is now yeah i had never heard of it and until uh 
researching for this episode. Yeah. It, it seems like there's a strong connection between that and early house music. Like a, a lot of the stuff sampled in house was sampling the energy kind of vibe. Like that was the, the bridge. Yeah. It was, it, I don't know. I've, I've never seen someone state that that's just the vibe I've gotten yeah. from seeing what music has been labeled that and how it sounds. <laughs> Marauder of course also notoriously did the, 80s remake of metropolis or not a remake but the score which i was unaware of until the two of you uh performed in forget the times doing the phantom carriage live score a few months ago yeah and that came up as a subject with some people i was speaking with later they talked about this the 80s giorgio moroder produced metropolis soundtrack were you either of you aware of this whole phenomenon that happened yeah because i i did uh, the metropolis soundtrack a few years ago as well i remember i had heard before that that there was some weird 80s remix of it and then i dug in and actually watched it while we were rehearsing for the score just to see what a completely different take on it would be and it's cool is it i like it it's it's a it's strange how much of a completely different vibe it gives that movie because when we performed it, it was a dark, heavy kind of metal inspired soundtrack at times kind of playing on the, the class struggle vibe going on. But yeah. when he does it, it's like a disco soundtrack. <laughs> it makes the movie a lot lighter and happier. <laughs> yeah. Of course, uh, Marauder is me as a child of the eighties, uh, re- remembers the top gun music and Kenny Loggins highway to the danger zone. I think that's where I first heard Giorgio Moroder's name. I didn't know he was involved with that. Honestly. He was. <laughs> that checks out, though. A billion projects. Sense. Yeah. They recognized both Bellati and Moroder and Donna Summer recognized disco was going in different directions by the late 70s. So they gave each of the album's four sides a different musical feel. The first side is kind of a rock and new wave vibe. The second one is more traditional disco sounds. The third side is comprised of ballads, and the fourth side dips into elect is more electronic and synthesizer driven in the vein of Summer's 1977 hit, I Feel Love. So you started us with the least interesting potential side. I would say so, but it's in chronological or sequenced properly, and I didn't want to go with either of the big hits. Okay. So, But that fusion of styles is probably most responsible for her remaining relevant through the next phase of music, I would say. If she had stuck with a pure disco, I think she probably would have phased out faster. Yeah, and this, we'll talk a little bit about this more, but this kind of helped her transition into the next phase of her career, I Mm -hmm. I believe. Well, we'll go ahead and play another cut and see if Jeremy's down with this. We're going to play One Night in a Light... One Night in a Lifetime. One Night in Paris? One Night... (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah, this is going to be One Night in Paris, as interpreted by (laughs) Donna Summer. This was written by uh, Bellati and a guy named Harold Faltermeyer, who is known, best known for composing Axel F, the theme from Beverly Hills Cop. And he also did the Top Gun anthem in the music to the Fletch movies starring Chevy Chase, which I have actually never seen. I, I didn't know Top Gun had an anthem. Apparently it does. <laughs> and it's not Highway to the Danger Yeah, zone. that's what I would have assumed. <laughs> All right, so let's listen to... One night in a lifetime in Paris. (laughs) 
That's what I'm talking about. You feeling that more? That's the party. That's, so that, that's side B. The more traditional disco side. Four. Okay. Yep. That's Jeremy's. Uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> it kind of feels like even the disco side is a little more straightforward than the disco they had been doing, though. Because if you go into the like mid '70s Donna Summer stuff, the there's more uh, lush string sections. The synthesizers are a little more out in the front. This is just like four four beat and let the vocals take over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that, you know, even trying to kind of service the crowd that they are, the built-in crowd, they're at least kind of trying to take them in that new direction with them. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because it it feels like the concept of let's have four different genres just feels like a desperate attempt at saving a music career, but it worked so well. This is her best-selling album. and I mean, I was reading some different reviews of this and, I think all music stated that this is possibly the greatest disco album of all time. Like aside from the sales, they were like heralding as a artistic achievement. People love this album. Yeah. This album, not that I've dove deep into disco, but this one keeps my attention throughout, you know, in its four sides. Partially it might be the fact that it does shift as you go along, but I feel like the craft of every song is just really solid. I mean, I think it helps that these Donna Summer and the two producers had been working together for so long. Definitely. were comfortable with with working with each other Mm -hmm. and going in those different directions. And they probably explored, I mean, uh, I Feel Love, that song was a couple years prior to this. And I've seen interviews with uh, DJs from that time who received the promotional single and said when they put it on, it just blew their minds because they were essentially – I mean, Marauder and Bellati were probably well aware of like Kraftwerk and Krautrock. And <laughs> I feel like some of that is w- working into that that track there. And I feel love the, the big Yeah, hit. that makes sense. I was going to go a little bit into Donna Summer's background. You know, she's among the biggest names that we've covered on the show so far. For sure. And so I'm going to kind of just do a brief overview. She has a lot of records and there's a lot that you could talk about. You just informed me of some things I wasn't even aware of that we'll probably (laughs) discuss. But she was born LaDonna Adrian Gaines in Boston, Massachusetts on December 31st, 1948. She was the third of seven children. Her father was a butcher and her mother a school teacher. 
I'm going to grill you. You ready? Oh, <laughs> right in the middle of it. <laughs> what uh, country star had a fictional name with the last name Gaines, huh? Huh? Was that from like a John C. Riley movie? No. A, a, fiction, a fictional country star. The country star is real, but he had a fake name. Like Donna Summer wasn't her real name. Well, it was when she got married to a guy with the last name Summer. It still wasn't Donna. LaDonna. And she changed the spelling <laughs> of it. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know it's this Garth one. Brooks. He was Chris Gaines. That was his oh. fake rock and roller Yeah, persona. he was like edgy, right? Yeah. It was, he was appealing to the youth. Yeah. His name was not Garth Brooks? No, that was his real name. And then he made a fake persona to be a rock star. Grill him with something else. Do it. Do it. Uh, I got nothing. Yeah. Yeah, you really dropped this one right I was, in the middle. I was interested. I I was fully okay with the information Peter was giving me. I was hanging on every word, and then you just had to jump in and interrupt it. <laughs> Let's. I just want to make the subtext clear. Sean is mad at me because I did not get him Burger Bros before the podcast. <laughs> I'm just going to air this dirty laundry now. Well, I sh- additionally, uh, Jeremy's mad because even though Sean injured himself in racquetball, he still beat Jeremy. 100%. <laughs> is, is this true, this, Jeremy? Yes, it was my first racquetball game of my whole life. Okay. Jeremy, how many how many foot races have we been in? Do you have more information about Donna <laughs> Summer? I do. She started singing in church. Uh, she moved to New York City in 1967, so she probably would have been 17 or 18 at that time. She joined a blues rock band called Crow. They had some label interests, but Donna was the only one the label really cared about, and they passed on signing Crow, and the band dissolved. Staying in New York, Donna auditioned for a role in Hair, the counterculture musical, where Aquarius, the dawning of Aquarius and all that. Mm-hmm. I think people were naked on stage. She landed the role of Sheila and moved to Germany to be in the Munich production of Hair. Her first single as Donna Gaines on Polydor in 1968 was a German version of Aquarius from Hair, the song Aquarius. She had become fluent in German from her time spent in Germany as well as later in Austria. And in 1973, she married Austrian actor Helmuth Sommer, with whom she had one child, a daughter. Though the couple divorced in 76, she kept the anglicized spelling of his surname as her stage name. So she met Maroder and Bellati while working as a model part-time, as well as a backup singer in Munich. The trio formed a working partnership, and she signed with their label Oasis Records. Not to be confused with Oasis, the band. True. I don't think they were involved. They They didn't have a disco phase. They should have. (laughs) At age like four. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The Gallagher brothers. Summer signed to Casablanca. Is that how you would say that? Casablanca? Casablanca? I guess it depends on what part of the country you're from. All right. I don't know what part of the country I'm from. (laughs) You can give it that harsh Midwestern accent. Yeah. So that's an American label that uh, signed her after their president, Neil. I like this guy's name. Neil Bogart. He had played a copy of the song Love to Love You, which was actually just a demo of a song Donna, Donna Summer had written that uh, Maroder had given to Bogart. He played that. Bogart had these extravagant parties. He played that there, and his guests requested to hear it over and over, which is really funny because I checked out that song, and it's very sexual and lots of moaning and growing. Oh, yeah. You, you know this one? Mm-hmm. 
She was she just was had written the song and was demoing it, but Marauder thought, hey, this works. And you know, she wasn't necessarily comfortable with that being the image of her out there. Yeah. From what I understand was channeling uh, Marilyn Monroe yes. on that song. That's what it said, yeah. And actually I'd recorded written. the vocals laying down, thinking about how Marilyn Monroe would have recorded and sang the song. I have a, a short story about this. Sean invited me to help him DJ a like family, was it a farmer's market thing or some kind of vintage the market? The vintage in the zoo, which is at the farmer's market. And it's, you know, a very family oriented. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I love this song, Love to Love You Baby, and just like put it on. And then it, she starts doing the moaning. And I was like, oh, no, oh, no. And like <laughs> had to do uh, a very quick switch over. <laughs> I wasn't familiar with that song and that was kind of what, that's what got her known in the States. She was more known in Germany prior to that. And yeah, that was her signature song for a while. That's a little bit of background on her. I think I'd like to move on to the ballad side of the album we're talking about, Bad Girls, and play My Baby Understands. All right, yeah, that when I was trying to figure out what song I'd play from the ballad side earlier today, that's the last song on that side, and there were some other ones I was considering, and then as soon as she hit those notes, <laughs> those really powerful notes in there, I was like, it's going to be that one. Yeah, that was cool. Really, I, I guess I just haven't, I don't necessarily hear her push her range in that manner that often. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, she's definitely more of a versatile singer than most people would normally give her credit for. I watched a little bit of live footage, and yeah, she's an amazingly talented singer. Yeah, I liked the singing. The arrangement gave me like Journey vibes, though, that I wasn't 
super down on, to be honest. You're not down with Journey? Not especially. Steve Perry? <laughs> nah. And what if we name all the members of Journey? Will that change your mind? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> what if we play the Journey video game that was on Atari? I don't even understand what you're talking about. There, there was a J- Journey Escape. There was a, a video game where the, where the members are escaping from all the madness of their life as playing in a band. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, we can go back to... Talk about Donna Summer more. We'll back I don't like did Donna Summer have any video games? Oh, yeah. man. I wish she would have. I bet some of her songs have been featured in them by now, with the way they do. Entirely likely. So she ended up leaving Casablanca, with my Midwest way of saying it, <laughs> after this album because she felt that the label had exploited her and made her portray a sexually oriented image, which... She was uncomfortable with that. Many people know her as the queen of disco, but she had another title. And this is going to go back to something we talked about on the Christmas episode. She was also known as the first lady of love. Yeah. You've heard of her title as this Yeah, that's what I was reading. So we kind of debated the, that, the kind of the validity of that title on there because apparently in addition to be the first lady in addition to being the wife of the president of the of the United States or it's also the leading woman in a particular activity or profession and Donna Summer did not want to be the one leading the world in love yeah apparently <laughs> uh so she generally felt like she had no control over her personal life or career so she filed a lawsuit and left Casablanca and signed to the newly formed Geffen Records Right. And I had read that she initially planned on doing another record with Casablanca, but was saying, like, if I'm doing another one, I want to have my own control over my image and sound and push it even farther away from the stereotypical disco sound. And they just weren't having it. Yeah. Which is weird because, I mean, they weren't strictly a disco label. I mean, they literally had Kiss on the label. You'd think they would have just let their artists do what they want, but... I mean, again, female artists seem to always have less control over their music, especially in that time period. Definitely. Yeah, even looking at the Bad Girls album cover, there's this, it has her up close here, but then there's also her in the background standing next to a red light and a police officer, kind of like on the corner. Yeah. I I don't know how much she had to say in this image being the album cover. I mean, from what I understand... Like, you know, the the cover is still a sexualized version of herself, but she was still trying to push farther away from the nice sexual fantasy thing, like saying that there's, you know, still more more dimensions to her than that. And that this was an active, uh, an active move on her part to okay. move away from being just the first lady of love and like have kind of, you know, the, the bad girl image going on as well. Yeah. So there was something else that you wanted to discuss along those lines. Yeah, and in doing some research on this and watching some interviews, I was made aware of a piece of controversy that apparently surrounded her for a number of years. And apparently there was an active rumor that she was actually a man or was involved in some kind of a sex change in some way. And from what I understand, that actually started around the time of this record which is partly due to her, you know, shift in imagery. And it, it just, it's, it seems so gross to think about that people would like put this on her for so long. And she, I mean, the interview I was watching was in 89 and she definitely still seemed like it was, she had moved past it, but it was not a pleasant thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Jeremy had mentioned earlier that the, 
anti-disco movement is maybe inherently racist, Jeremy? Yeah, and the uh, I was watching a documentary about uh, Studio 54, mm-hmm. is that the place? Yeah. In New York, and they got into the history of disco that I was largely unaware of because I wasn't in existence during it. And they got into how it was a movement of mostly people of color and uh, people of varying sexualities that supported the movement. And then there seemed to be this backlash by people under the flag of rock and roll that were just white straight people primarily. Um, and there's kind of this connotation left over that's gross and seems like it would play into kind of spreading rumors that she's a man and that that would even be a bad thing. That's exactly what I was thinking about. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, like you said, the, the primary originating culture was, you know, like queer culture and black culture and a lot of European culture as well. You know, there was a lot of Italians that were forefront producers like Giorgio Moroder. America does not have a great history of embracing those cultures very well. So it would make sense that the backlash couldn't just be simply music taste because it was a strong backlash. I mean, you'll still encounter people with like strong feelings about disco. Yeah, particular people who are around at that time period. It hasn't gone away for for some people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, even on the uh, even on the white side of it, one of the biggest uh, faces of disco at that time was John Travolta because of the movie who has since come out. And, uh, you know, the Bee Gees had a much softer image than a lot of the other bands. So it became this like macho culture thing of like, you can't be a man and listen to disco. So, yeah, the whole thing of uh, Donna Summer can't be a woman if she doesn't fit into our specific idea of what a woman is supposed to be as the the first lady of love definitely just feels part of the whole gross cultural backlash against disco well i'm glad that you had found that information uh, i apparently didn't do as much research as i normally do <laughs> i was so ready to do my uh hippie folk record right <laughs> changed courses at the last minute so thank you for bringing that bit of information to the table to discuss uh, Summer just uh, she has such a huge career, so there's it would take a long time to cover every hit she ever had. And you know, we're kind of focusing on this album, but she earned a total of 42 hit singles on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 in her lifetime. 14 of those reached the top 10. She claimed a top 40 hit every year between 1975 and 84, so she had a long peak of commercial success. I would like to play from the final side that did dips more into the electronic and synthesizer side of things. I'm going to play Sunset People. Do either of you know this track? Nope. Negative. We're going to do that one, and uh, we'll come back and see what we think about it.
Well, Jeremy, based on the funky dance you were just doing around the room, I'm guessing you were feeling that one. Oh, yeah. I like the swoops. <laughs> I liked her delivery in that a lot better. I just like the sound. That's that jam that I want to hear when I hear Donna Summer. Yeah. I was saying that to me, that sounds like the most, I guess, traditional Donna Summer vibe where, you, yeah, Giorgio Moroder's kind of letting loose a little bit, getting experimental with his swooping synthesizers and... Yeah, Donna's vocals just sit so perfectly, so atmospherically in that kind of uh, spacey and chaotic synthesizer funk. And so I think that, going back to what I was saying about the ballad song before, I think, yeah, normally when I think of her vocals, I I think of that ethereal floating voice over Mm -hmm. those synthesizers. And to hear her doing something with more soul to it is what really stood out to me in that other song. But yeah, I mean, she really does that she's in her element in on tracks like this one we just heard. Absolutely. Donna Summer died on May 17th, 2012 from lung cancer at her home in Naples, Florida. She theorized that her lung cancer was a result of the toxic air after the 9/11 attacks in New York City. Her apartment was near ground zero and she was home at the time. The air was filled with toxic dust from the collapse of the twin towers. She became very nervous that she would get sick from breathing it. Hmm. And some people theorized that it was from all the years she spent in clubs and she had been a smoker at one time. But more likely, more and more people are finding that there are health, long-term health results from breathing in that toxic dust from that event, the toxic air from that event. And so... A spot like first responders and other people who are present. So it very likely was a result of the 9-11 attacks. Yeah. I mean, there was a recent uh, bill that went through to approve more funding for first responders from 9-11 because a lot of them are facing critical medical issues now, right? Yeah. I remember seeing a, a video of Jon Stewart addressing Congress trying to raise money. Yeah. It's kind of a weird thing. It's a weird byproduct of 9-11. Things that are still people that are it's still affecting almost 20 years on yeah i was going to go out on bad girls the more you think about it disco does not suck who is what (laughs) who's here i don't know but those were some wise words those are wise words that floated down we should have them do an episode next week Mm. i like the revisionist history we're presenting once again a night in paris (laughs) (laughs) Person's growling. Are we going to have a night in Paris next week? Is that what's happening? Yeah, basically. Okay. 
<laughs> Listen to our next episode to find out who that wise mystery guest might be. <laughs> We're going to leave you with the uh, title track, one of the big hits, Bad Girls. This has been another installment of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. Thank you for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. I know every week we tell you all the different internet things where you could find us. This week I wanted to focus in and say, find us on Patreon. We have our first Patreon contributors, and you can find us at patreon.com slash I'd Buy That Podcast. No apostrophes, no spaces, just I, D, B, you know the rest. (laughs) And, you know, find us on there. We would appreciate your support. And we have uh, premium episodes now available there. So check us out there. You can always check us out at our website, ibythatpodcast.com, Facebook, Instagram, Gmail, wherever. This is for the bad boys and girls out there. 